open your Bible tonight, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This evening, we are ready for the quarterly observance of the Lord's Supper. And it's always a privilege that we have. And I mention this, I think, every time that we come to this uh, particular time of uh, each quarter to take the Lord's Supper, that it is a privilege for us to be here. And we celebrate the Supper in order to picture the death of Christ. And really, the Lord's Supper is the most vivid picture that the Scriptures give us of Christ's death. Um, The pictures that we have in the Bible uh, of the death of Christ are not illustrations that are etched into the manuscripts. I know there are some of you who may have Bibles that intersperse between the pages. There may be paintings, uh, maybe famous paintings of Old Testament scenes or New Testament scenes. And almost always, you're going to find there a a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. And the artist tries to depict the, the pain and the anguish that is on the face of Christ. In many churches that you go into, there are paintings that line the walls. And again, you see these different scenes from Old and New Testament. And there again, you see a a picture of Christ hanging on the cross. Well, we don't have those kinds of things in our church because we don't believe that the Bible gives us any authorization to make pictures of Christ. And so the nearest that we come to this would be the empty cross that we have in our baptistry. And I'll have to confess to you that when we put that cross up there a few years ago, I even had my doubts about we should even do that. But we don't have any doubt in our minds about the suffering that Christ went through. Uh, Since he was both God and man, he suffered in ways that we can't understand. Because he was God, he was able to suffer uh, to the limits of physical endurance and able to suffer to the limits of mental endurance. But even more than that, the Bible teaches us that Christ suffered the limits in his spiritual endurance as well. And that was when he was separated from his father at a time when the sins of all those that would believe in him were placed upon him. So the image that we get is actually a mental image that scripture paints for us. And that image is actually spoken to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And really, the Holy Spirit is far more capable of impressing that into our minds of what Jesus went through than any painting that an artist could paint. Now, we have some understanding of the death of Christ and some understanding of that suffering, but we don't understand it completely. I mean, it's just too far above us. We, we don't understand the act. We don't know how that we can even approach to the mind of God that he would conceive a method by which our sins that could be forgiven like this method. It cost him immeasurably, and yet the cost was not too high for him to pay. It did not outweigh his love, and he gave us his only son to die for us. Now, I want to call your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I want to use this for the text and the message tonight, and I hope that this will help us in our remembrance of the Lord's Supper. Somewhat of a, an odd text, you might think, for me to read at this particular time, but if you look in your Bible at 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse number 6, the Apostle Paul writes, and he said, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, 
for God loveth a cheerful giver. And then if you'll look at verse number 15, thanks be to God or unto God for his unspeakable gift. Now in this passage, the apostle Paul is speaking on the grace of giving. He writes to the Corinthian church, and this was a church that had shown its willingness to send an offering to poor Christians in Jerusalem. And that was an ongoing problem with the Corinthian, or rather the Jerusalem church. It was always a problem of poverty. Uh, They were in dire straits financially almost all of the time. Many of them had lost their jobs because they uh, had become believers in Christ because of their faith that they were turned out. In the beginning of the book of Acts, we find that the church there pooled their resources in order to take care of so many people that were coming to Christ in faith. And so they put all of their resources together, and then after a time, there were so many people that they just ran out of resources. And so what Paul would do, as he was traveling about on his missionary journeys, he would start new churches. And one of the things that he would ask the churches to do was to send an offering for these poor saints that were in Jerusalem and just give something of themselves for these people that were like-minded in their faith and in their purpose. The Gentile churches in Macedonia responded overwhelmingly to Paul's plea for an offering. And so Paul commended them. And we find this in the 8th chapter as Paul writes to the Corinthian church and tells them about the great offering that was taken in Macedonia. So he says in 2 Corinthians 8, in verse number 1, he said, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit, or we want you to know about the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. So Paul commended these churches of Macedonia because even though they were actually very poor themselves and going through a lot of persecution, yet they were willing to help, they were willing to send an offering, and as Paul says, they gave beyond what they were able to give. And so in the beginning of the ninth chapter, the apostle Paul reminds the Corinthian church of their promise to help. And it was a promise that they had willingly made, but they hadn't yet carried through with it. So he continues here in our text to show us how much that God approves of the grace of giving. And we ought not to wonder why giving is so near to the heart of God, because it's God who gives us life. It's God who gives us all things that we need. It's God who sustains our life. But above all, We should not wonder why God is so impressed and wants to uh, tell us so much about what to give and it's so near to his heart because of what we read in that 15th verse. He said, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. That's what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes tonight. God has showered many gifts upon us. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 68, verse 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. And just to help you out a little bit there, when you see Selah attached to one of the psalms, that is a word that simply means for you to stop and to pause and think about that. Think about these wonderful gifts that God has given. He has so greatly blessed us with daily benefits, the psalmist says. 
We have a hymn that we sing sometimes that says, Count your many blessings, name them one by one. And there are, of course, many blessings that we can easily articulate. Sometimes it's good for us to have a testimony meeting. And we've done this on occasion around Thanksgiving time, that we would take a night and have people give a testimony about the special things that God has done for them in their lives. And so people will talk about the great blessings that God has given, and we're able to describe those kinds of things that God has given us. But we find here in this 15th verse that there is a gift that's been given by God that cannot be counted. The value of it cannot be told. An understandable explanation of this gift is impossible. A complete explanation is impossible for us to give. Now, our King James Version says that this gift is unspeakable. And that means that it can't be fully declared, that language fails to describe it. And that's because our thoughts are not deep enough, and neither are they high enough to let us know, to understand what God had in his mind when he gave us his own son. Now, let me give you a few thoughts that I hope will prepare you for the supper tonight. The first one is the gift of incomprehensible love. There are two acts of love that are centered in the Godhead that make the gift of Christ beyond words of expression. And the first one is the love that the Father had for the Son. And that love is actually built into the unity of the, of the Godhead. The love that the Father had for his Son is a unity of purpose. It's a love that existed before time began. All the Father's love, all of the Father's complete confidence is in Christ. He invested in him all power and authority in the world. Scripture says that God has committed all judgment to the Son. In 1 Corinthians, it tells us that he has put all things under his feet. And it, the Bible shows us that God left with his own son, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the eternal purpose of reconciling the world to himself. And there's a bond that exists between the father and the son that is unbreakable. It's unchangeable. And this is based in the immutability of God. Uh, and that maintains this union as always being inseparable. The nearest that we can come to understanding this kind of love is in just the use of those terms, where we have father and son. We come near to that perhaps with the word family. But everything that we know about the best of human relationships is that in our relationships, in some way they break down, in some way they fail, in some way they always disappoint. We know that there aren't any perfect relationships. I think back in my life, and I don't suppose that there was a son. You may, you may dispute how I feel about this, but I don't suppose that there was a son who loved his father any more than I love my dad. But I know that there were times when my father was disappointed in me. And there were also times that... Even though I could say that I love my father, there were some times of discipline that I didn't understand. Now, my dad was a disciplinarian, disciplinarian, if I can say that right, and uh, he believed in spanking. I got my share. And it's hard to understand that sometimes when you're a child, that in that moment that you're, when you're being disciplined, that you can really understand the value, the worth of that. I love my family, and I love my children, but I can honestly say that in our relationships, there are times of hurt feelings. 
There are moments when we feel uncomfortable with each other because there's been a word that's been spoken out of turn, a word that's spoken harshly or carelessly. We know those feelings. All of us have experienced that. But what we don't know is how a relationship can be perfect. None of us has ever experienced that. And yet if you were to ask me, can you love your wife and your children any more than you do? Well, I might say, I think that I could be more conscious of expressing it in the right way, but you're never going to get me to admit that I could actually love my wife or my children more than I do. Well, that's not a perfect love, and we don't even know how to express a higher love than what we have because we've reached the limits of what we can do. We are all imperfect. But when you think about the love of God, God has no imperfections. There are no moments of hurt feelings. There aren't any times of mistaken motives. There's never a time when the mind and purpose of the Father and Son are not in perfect agreement with one another. They are always perfect in will and purpose. Alexander McLaren wrote, The analogies between what we call love in man and love in God must be supplemented by the differences between them if we are ever to approach a worthy conception of the unspeakable love that underlies the unspeakable gift. So that first love that's inexplicable is the love between the Father and the Son. The second love that I want to talk to you about is the one that we actually celebrate the supper for tonight, and that's the incomprehensible love that the Father had for the human race. The Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And I think in all of us that should raise a question, why? Why did God love us so much? Why was he willing to give his Son for us? Well, everything that we know about ourselves, everything that the Scripture tells us about what we are and what our humanity really is deep down inside would lead us to other conclusions. God's love for humanity simply does not make sense. Now, one of the greatest difficulties that we have is to love those that hurt us and misuse us. In fact, our greatest difficulty is what the Bible commands us to do when it says, love your enemies... We would never do that unless God commanded us to do it. Now, we think about how God loved the human race when all that we had ever done was try to hurt him. All that we ever did was sin against him. All we ever did was commit crimes against him. And yet, God loved us. As I said, we would never reach this conclusion that we are to love other people who hurt us. That's just not something that's been built into man. And so, our love actually originates in God. And God's the one who supplies us with that ability to love our enemies as ourselves. Scripture says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And you notice there that there is no article in front of love, and so that means that love is the nature of God. It means that God can't do anything other than love. And that's really hard for us to understand, because if you come to church, if you're a saved person you know that God has very clearly told us that there are some that he will actually punish in hell. And so we don't understand how that can be consistent. That really doesn't mesh with the reality of what we think about love, to think that God could so love the human race, God could so love the world, and yet still punish people in hell. 
And this is the cause of why some people read a few pages into the Bible and then they get to the parts where they see a God who punishes people and they think, well, that's not a God that I want. That's not the God that I want to believe in. And so they don't want a a God that the Bible describes. And what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is incomprehensible love, that we simply do not understand the love of God as we need to understand it, to reconcile all of those things in our mind. Then the second gift that God has given us is the gift of incomprehensible grace. And grace is when God allows himself to love sinful people. And we could add a few more words to that. We could talk about God's mercy and about his goodness. And we don't really understand those two things either. How is God's grace shown to sinners? Well, God manifested his grace in the person of Jesus Christ. In the first chapter of John, John said that Jesus was full of grace and truth, or grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And the contrast that he's actually making in that chapter is between the law that came by Moses and grace that came by Christ. Now, we all understand law very well. We understand uh, that when people do things that are wrong, when people commit crimes, that they need to be punished. And we understand punishment, but what we don't understand is why someone would voluntarily take punishment for us. We don't understand why God would willingly give his son to take the punishment that we deserve. And further than that, we don't even understand why God would think of such a thing in the first place. I mean, even more incomprehensible is to think that God created the world with that intention. It'd be one thing if God created the world and all of a sudden his plans went awry and the only way that he could actually correct that was to put into place some really difficult, hard, inconceivable plan such as he did. I mean, that that would be hard enough. But then to think that God created this world knowing exactly what would happen, knowing exactly what Adam would do in the Garden of Eden, and knowing exactly how he was going to resolve that problem, that he would create the world with all of that in mind, knowing that he would have to give his own son to die for us. We don't understand that. We don't understand the grace of God that God intended to work this way, and the only way that he would save us was by the humility of Christ. It was by his condescension to a death that's cruel and unimaginable. Can you understand why God would do that? And then you take a moment to think about that descent that's explained in Philippians chapter 2, that when God sent Christ into the world, he didn't send him in the robes of a king. He didn't send him to live in the house, houses of the rich. He didn't come to wear the clothes of nobility. But everything that Christ went through was in the lowest form imaginable. He was born in a stable. He had to flee when he was less than two years old for his life. His parents had to take him into Egypt for protection. And then when he came back into Israel, he was raised in Nazareth, which was pretty much what you would call a ghetto town. It had the worst reputation possible. And then Jesus grew up in a blue-collar job. He was a carpenter. And then in the beginning of his public ministry, he was exposed to elements and to hunger. We find that in Matthew chapter 4 as he was driven into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and there he was tempted by the devil. We see him in his public ministry, how that 
he showed extreme forms of compassion for people, while at the same time he was shown extreme forms of contempt. And you wonder, how, how can we make any sense of that at all? And you know your heart and you know mine that we can read the story in the Bible and we cared nothing at all for what Christ went through until one day God opened our hearts and illumined our minds to what Christ actually did for us. And that's the only reason why we even think about it or consider it in the way that we do. God opened our eyes to his mercy and his grace. But I want to take you back to this text and show you something that's perhaps overlooked. And this is the third, the third point that I want to give you tonight, and that is the gift of incomprehensible reward. In verse number 6, Paul says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. You recognize that as the law of the harvest. Uh, you've heard preaching on this many times. You understand what this means. The application of it is to a Christian who sows the material in order to reap the spiritual. But what if we were to take that very same verse and we were to apply it to the mind of God? Well, we would see very quickly and understand that God did not sow sparingly, did he? God gave the very best that he could give, and he gave the most that he could give. He held nothing back from us. Of course, the best that he could give was Jesus, and Jesus gave up everything to save us from our sins. And in that sacrifice for Christ, there's actually a reward for God, and there is a reward for us. And I think both of those are beyond our comprehension. When we think a minute about what is God's reward, what could you possibly mean when you say that God receives a reward from this gift of Christ to the world? Well, in Isaiah 53, which is the consummate Old Testament scripture on the death of Christ, in Isaiah 53, verse 11, it says, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now, we don't understand that, but what it's telling us here is that Christ counts his labor and he counts his suffering and the humility and the contempt and all of the things that he went through as a price that was not too high to pay to achieve his greatest glory. It was a price that was not too high to pay to actually purchase a people for his name. The scriptures are telling us there that Christ is satisfied with the work that he did and that God is satisfied with what the Son did because it accomplished everything that he intended for it to do. And I think that's something that, you know, theologically people really need to have their eyes open to. Some would preach to a Savior that fails in what he wants to do, that he's trying to save people that he can't save, and he can't save them unless they give up themselves and voluntarily come to him and he's trying all he can, but it's really up to them. That's, that's not the picture that we have of a Savior. When he died, he was satisfied with his work and he was satisfied with his work because he said it is finished. It accomplished everything that he intended for it to do. And so the reward for God is heaven that's filled with angels and filled with the spirits of just men that are made perfect. And what all of these do, they fall down and they give glory to God. And that's the intention for the creation of the world. That's the intention for every one of us here tonight. God created this world with the full intent that we would give glory and honor to him. 
That's the reason that you're saved. That's why we're here tonight. It's why we have services, and that's what we're waiting for, to be raptured out of this world where we can go and forever and ever, all of the time, give glory to Jesus Christ. And in those passages of Scripture that we've read in Matthew 6 and Matthew 7, we see, and Matthew 5, we, we see that that's what goes on in heaven, that there is rejoicing, there's singing, there's praising, there's glorifying the name of our God. So that's God's reward. It's what Christ gave up to purchase us, a people that would give him the glory that he's due. And again, I say that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, why, why God would, would really want that, uh, why God would choose such people as we are, create a race such as this that falls and then redeem, he redeems and then brings them back to him. We don't understand why God would do all of that. But on our side, there's also a reward And that reward is barely touched by human language. Again, thinking about the book of Revelation, the apostle John tried to give us some idea of what the reward that we will receive will be like. He talks about heaven. He talks about that amazing city that's of inestimable value. He talks about foundations of precious jewels. He says there are walls of diamonds. There are streets of transparent gold. There is a pure river of water of life that runs through it. He tells us that there is no sickness and there is no pain. There, is no, there are no tears. There is no crying. So there is no need of the sun there, for the Son of God himself is the light of it. John tried his best to describe it, but he didn't really understand it. One of the things that we really can't understand is what is eternal life even like? We have no idea what eternal life will be like. Well, that, that's something far beyond our comprehension. We don't know what it will be like to live in supreme happiness that all the people that are there could not be happier in in any greater degree than they are. We don't understand that because we've never lived in a world and never had a life where there was always happiness. It's always something that brings us down. So we can't imagine, first of all, a life that never ends, and then we can't imagine that a life that's lived beyond the best of anything that we've ever experienced here. So this is a scripture, I think, when we apply it to God, shows that God sowed bountifully in order that we might reap abundantly. You know, I've often said that when we come to the supper, don't come here and treat this as a funeral. I think there are people that come to the Lord's Supper, and we don't really intentionally try to draw out emotions from people because that's that's not what we really center on. But there are people that come, and I suppose we'll just count it this way, that there are tears of happiness because there are times when uh, we go through the supper and you're really thinking about the elements and uh, the picture that's there and the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. There are times when tears come to your eyes. But I don't think that, and it shouldn't be this way at least, that those tears are tears of sadness. They shouldn't be tears of sadness because you think of the night that when Jesus gave the supper and he talked to his disciples and he told them that he was, he was going to die And a very short period of time, they were going to be without him. But he didn't say, now what I want you to do is sit down and I want you to think about that and I want you to cry about that and I want you to throw dust and ashes on your head because this is just a horrible thing that's going to happen to me. But you know what he said? He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's why I'm leaving. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and I'll receive you unto myself that where I am there, ye may be also. Do you think that he intended for them to be sad about the fact that he was dying? Not at all. 
The redemption of the world could not be accomplished without Christ's death on the cross. And so Jesus didn't want the disciples crying about it. Not necessarily was it a time for them to jump up and shout and jump over pews and things like that. But it wasn't a sad time. It was really a time to think he's coming back. And do you remember, as we talked, I hope maybe you remember, in the last Lord's Supper that we had a few months ago, that we talked about this very thing, that the Lord's Supper is for this purpose, to cause us to remember that Jesus Christ is coming back. And the Apostle Paul said that in 1 Corinthians. He said, you do show forth the Lord's death until he come. And so that's a very important part of what we do here, that we remember Jesus is coming back, and that makes us joyful, makes us happy that we have such a Savior. So Jesus said, this do. He said, keep doing this. Keep on doing it as a remembrance of him. Now, I hope tonight, as you think about that unspeakable gift that God has given, that you have the, perhaps have this song in your mind that we sang this morning that said, amazing grace, amazing love it talks about. And it says, how can it be? How can it be that God would love a sinner such as we are? Amazing love that God would give his son for us. All of that's incomprehensible. A great gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to celebrate tonight. This supper memorializes the death of Jesus Christ and that wonderful gift that God gave us in the salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this great gift that's been given us, as Paul says here in 2 Corinthians, an unspeakable gift. We could talk about the subject for many, many hours, and we could never plumb the depths of what you've done for us. But Lord, in in all the understanding that we have and all the humility that we can muster, we just have to say thank you, thank you, thank you for sending Jesus into the world to die for us. Lord, I pray that every Christian here as we take the supper tonight would have the consecration in their heart, the understanding in their heart that they need to serve you to the very best of their ability because God has given us such a great gift that There's just no way that we can repay it. The only thing that we can do is show our supreme gratitude, living the way that you would have us to live, showing the world the love of Jesus Christ in us and bringing other people to you. Lord, help us to remember this as we observe this supper tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.